won't you stand with me as we read the word of the Lord for today's message? Today's message comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now in this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So for just the, just for about three weeks, last week, today, and then next week, I just wanted to take some time because it's a timely word, timely thing for our church to have, um, to camp out in this passage in 1 John chapter 4. Just to camp out and stay here and, and, and not move on, just stay here. Enjoy it, plumb its depths, dig up the ground, find out what's underneath there, whatever treasure there might be. Uh, and just as a heads up, just so you know, uh, in a few weeks after we're done with 1 John chapter 4, uh, we'll begin preaching through the book of Romans. I have for years kind of jokingly but also seriously said that I would never as a pastor think to preach through the book of Romans. I've preached from it, passages before, but I would never preach chapter by chapter and verse by verse to go through Romans. I, I, I wouldn't do that until maybe uh, year 20 or 25 because I feel like it's a mountaintop that I as a pastor, as a preacher, as a theologian, as a Christian, just probably wouldn't be ready to start climbing that one that way. Um, uh, and, and now uh, I think the, the Holy Spirit has just put something wild and, and uh, maybe a little bit dumb inside of me and Pastor Tim Bice at our sister church, Greenbrier Church in Albany. And we said, let's preach the book of Romans. So we'll be going through that starting in a few weeks. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are looking forward to that. And if you don't, once we start, you'll be going, I'm so glad we did, we did this. Now, last week's sermon was all about God's love. So guess what this week's sermon then is? You guessed it. God's love. Nothing will change your life 
like knowing and receiving the love of God. Nothing can change your life like knowing and receiving the love of God. There's no diet plan, no meal plan, there's no workout plan. Uh, there, there's, there's no uh, sweet, serene Asian TV show host lady who can tell you how to uh, eliminate all the clutter and help you organize your home better. There's no feng shui. There's no philosopher. There's no self-help book. There's no others' help book. There's, there's no political. There's nothing that can and will transform a person's life and bring real, real, like real life that everything else promises to bring but always fails. There's nothing that will change your life like knowing and receiving the love of God. That's, that's still the big E on the I chart. From last week, that's still our big idea this week. Do you know, now, like, do you understand why that's so important? Why the love of God needs to be, it needs to be stressed. It needs to be emphasized, repeated, uncovered, peeled back, layer by layer, to see more and more and deeper and deeper into it. And in every way, really just, like, try not to graduate out of thinking on and wanting and seeking and trying to have and enjoy and experience the love of God, we, like never even graduating from that, it's because you and I probably know. We know more. You and I have heard more. And we have experienced more judgment and criticism and condemnation and discouragement rather than love. You and I have experienced those things time and time and time again. Not only at the hands of others, but possibly and even more tragically, we felt those things because of our own lives. And even perhaps the most tragic of all is that most of us have felt and we've believed that these are the things that God feels when he looks at our lives when he looks at our hearts, when he looks in and peers in at our minds, when he pierces past the covering that other people can't see into, when he, when, he, when he looks deeper inside of ourselves to the truth that it's hard for even us to see, we have experienced and believed and felt like that's how God feels about us too. At best, that he is very kindly and patiently tolerating us. And that's not, that doesn't feel love. That does not, doesn't feel like love. You know something? There's a, there's a, there's a pastor named Ray Ortland from, from Tennessee, and he said this once, and it, stuck, it struck me and it stuck with me ever since because it's so, so true. He said, I have never met anyone who was too encouraged in God's love. I've, and he, listen, this guy is ancient. He's like 72, okay? No, I'm sorry. He's, he's middle-aged, and spry is a spring chicken, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's been doing pastoral ministry for longer than I've been alive. And he's, he's not a flatterer. He's not some rosy-colored glasses, optimistic guy who doesn't understand what darkness is. But he said, you know what? I've never met anyone. He means in his whole life, whole ministry, and he's dealt with hard-to-deal-with-people. He's seen hard-to-deal-with-circumstances, tragedy and suffering, trial and drama. And he goes, I have never met the person who was way over-encouraged in God's love. And honestly, after about 15, 16 years-ish of being a pastor myself, I, yeah, I agree, I see that too. Which is pretty much why 
Every letter that the apostles wrote in the New Testament, even the ones like 1 and 2 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul has to write to essentially the First Baptist Church of Jerry Springer, they were a mess. They, they were scandalous. They were dirty. Like, they, woo, they were big problems. Even to churches like that, these letters, they are lavish in their encouragement to God's people because of God's love. Even the ones that are heaviest in correction and rebuke, and are you kidding me? Did you lose your mind? They're filled and lavish with encouragement because of God's love. And these, these letters are what we know as the Bible, which means if you're a Christian, you know, you believe that this is the very word of God that he has perfectly given to us, he's perfectly preserved for us, and in every letter of the Bible, God says what he means, and he means what he says, and he is constantly, he is constantly, repeatedly, emphatically, clearly, explicitly, and unashamedly trying to encourage you to bring you peace and joy and hope and soul rest. And how does he do that? By, by showing and explaining and helping us study and draw, drawing us deeper and deeper into the infinitely diverse, the infinitely manifold displays of his love for us. So last week, if God's love is going to change your life, two things need to happen. We saw from 1 John 4 that you need to know God's love. You need to know about it. It's got to get in your head. You need to know the gospel. You need to know the message of who God is and how he's loved you, the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who has come to, to save sinners, to redeem God's people, to bring God's enemies and change them into children and take them into the family. You need to, you've got to know that because if you're going to enjoy it and love it, your heart can't love what your mind doesn't know. And then, number two, then if you know it, then you've got to receive God's love. You can't just apprehend it intellectually. It's got to get down into your heart then. You've got to love it. You've got to, you've got to taste and see and know that God, this God, his love, he, it's good. It's, it's worth more than anything else. You're going to need to want it, accept it. You've got to take hold of it. And, and you stay near and you stay in places and things and people in which God stores his love. You're hungry. You know where the pantry is. You know where the fridge is. In my family, my son, my daughters, they know where the pantry is. They know where the fridge is. And they know that all the food there is mine. And because I'm their dad and I love them, it's all theirs. And so if they're hungry, they know where to go. They can go to where dad has supplied the food and they can eat. And they know that if there's food that they can't get or food that they need made that only their dad, they know they can come and stay with me. They can come and ask me. And I'll make it. I'll prepare it. Because nothing will change your life like knowing and receiving the love of God. Now, I just want to take us through 1 John chapter 4 again. And I want to focus on just some of the characteristics, some of the qualities of what God's love is like. Because if you're going to have it and receive it, 
you got to know it and have it and receive it. And I just want to, I want to give fuel. I want to, I want to invest as much into you going, whoa, let's just think and have it. I want to show you the nature of God's love, starting from this passage and, and, and kind of getting into other scriptures. So here we go, just f- five or six reasons, and I'm just, I'm going to go as, like, right, straight out as, as, as I can. First of all, God's love isn't just an idea or a feeling. He's brought it into reality. God's love isn't just an idea or a feeling. He's brought it into reality. In verse 9, John says, In this in this action, in this person, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live, we might have life through him. Other places in the Bible tell us that apart from Jesus, apart from him being your God, apart from his cross and resurrection, then the natural born human being is dead. You're spiritually dead in your trespasses. But with Jesus, you have real life. You have new life. So let me put, let's, let's get into this this way. God's love just isn't just an idea or a feeling. God has brought his love into reality. Every time that you have felt or experienced love, which is invisible, right? Love is invisible. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. You can't see, like, love itself. It's not like, oh, I see love. There's this pinkish, rosy-colored haze floating around someone. No. But listen, every time that you have felt love or you have felt love for someone or from someone, it was because of something in reality. The invisible is received because of something visible, something manifests, something experienceable. Someone loved me. Someone said something. Someone did something. Someone fixed something, changed something, gave something. We all know what it means to be told, I love you, and we need to hear those sorts of words, but that, that love gets proven, it shows up, it's made manifest, John uses that word, when that love that's expressed is acted out. When a person does a thing, in reality, the invisible becomes visible. And God has been demonstrating his love since the beginning. God's been doing, this is, Jesus Christ is not, whoa, this is the first time he's ever loved. No, uh-uh. The, 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 the story of God's love goes all the way back to the very, very first page of the Bible, okay? In the Old Testament, Psalm 103 is a, just a, it's a laundry list of reasons showing us this is how God has loved us. This is what kind of God loves us. And we're, we bless him. We're so thankful for him, right? In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, he has made known his ways. God is, he's told us what his character is like, what his law is like, what his ways are, right? He's told us, and so he's made known his ways to Moses and his acts he has made known to his people, Israel. So he's shown up in word and deed, his activities. Miraculous interventions of power. Miraculous interventions of protection and provision pillar of fire and smoke, manna from heaven, water from a rock, lightning and thunder, 
plagues upon his enemies and passing over his people and relieving them and protecting them from condemnation and death. <laughs> and he does all these things on behalf of, he does all these things for the ones he loves. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 10, this is, this is a prophetic moment where God himself is speaking. He says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills might, could be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. And that, that's, ooh, that's a special kind of love, compassion. Just to feel for you and care about you. Gentle, low, down on your level, the superior, sits with the inferior, not requiring you to be better so you can climb up to get to him. No, he comes down. He's compassionate. God has always been making his love apparent by acting it out, by demonstrating it in the real world reality of human lives. And the pinnacle act of God where he's showing and manifesting his love, he's making it real. In reality, the pinnacle of that is when he sends his own son, Jesus, into our world, into our reality. Jesus, who is God, he showed up. The invisible, John says, no one has ever seen God. Whoops, now we do. The invisible is made visible. God showed up. He didn't simply send a letter. He didn't send a messenger. It wasn't a text message. It wasn't an email. God showed up. For God to show up, just to merely show up, is an act of love. The God who is love, he showed up in person. And with him comes his love. Why don't you say it with me? We'll see it on the screen. No, say it with me. Here we go. Let's practice that. Nothing will change your life like knowing and receiving the love of God. Say that with me. Nothing will change your life like knowing and receiving the love of God. Now say it for yourself. We're going to change the pronoun here. Nothing is going to change my life. Nothing will change my life like knowing and receiving the love of God. Point two. God's love is guaranteed by him being who he is and not by you being what you ought to be. God's love is guaranteed by him being who he is not by you being what you ought to be. Verse 7, John, John says, Beloved, by the way, that's your name. That's your name. God calls you beloved. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God doesn't know God because God is love. If you knew him, he's love, right? We love because he first loved us. See, God's love for you didn't start with you, and it doesn't start with you. It starts with him. And that good news is that, that, that I, I really want that to be a relief to you because it really is with me. We have love. We can love God. We can love other people, and it's not... We can do that, and that's going to happen not because you and I are so good and so full of love and goodness. That's only, it's only possible because he is full of goodness and love, and he loved us. In John chapter 15, 16, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, listen, you didn't choose me, 
but I chose you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 6, the Apostle Paul's trying to encourage you by what? By telling you about God's love. So this is what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, before he flipped the light switch of the universe on. He knew you, and it wasn't just intellectual. He knew you like he loved you, and he chose you and wanted you. He did that, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In love. I have a son. His name is Martin, and he's adopted. He was born to another woman, not my wife, Shannon. He was conceived by another man, and not me. And he was an infant. And he was still in the womb when we got his profile. And we said, because God said, that's the one. And before we met him, we were excited. We, we had love conceived in me and Shannon's heart. Excitement to meet this little boy. Even before I laid eyes on him, I wanted to love him. I was ready to love him. And laying eyes on him, I loved him. And I'd already, me and Shannon had already signed the paperwork before we saw what his face looked like, what his body looked like. So our love for him, our adoption, wasn't contingent upon how healthy he was or how handsome he was. We just loved him because we loved him and we adopted him. We chose him. And he didn't choose us. We chose him before he ever had a chance to choose us. Why? Because of love. And that's, that is like a failingly weak and feeble shadow of the kind of love that God has that brings him to choose and adopt you and make you his. You see, John says that Christians have been born of God, he says in that passage. You've been born of God. I want to ask you, how much did you have to do with your own birth? How much did you have to do with your own birth? Right? Like, really, like when you got born, like you were pretty much just there. That was your part, right? Your mom and dad started the work nine months before. Your mom carried you and your, your dad supported her and cared for her. Your mom did the painful pushing, right? Your dad leaned over the plate, took one for the team, right? Took all the shouting, the panicking, the accusations, the cussing, right? Called him everything but a child of God. He took that. He loves her. He knows, he knows those, are just, uh, those are just words for the wind, baby. I know you don't mean that. I know you don't hate me, right? But you didn't have a vote. You didn't get a vote. You didn't, get, you didn't have a say or a part to play in any thing in this whole deal of you being born, right? I don't know about you, but I sure am glad that my folks made a choice to make me and have me, and they didn't wait. My mom and dad, they didn't wait on me to say or ask or do something or be something, because if that was what they were waiting on, if that was what it depended on, I wouldn't even be here. So glad they had no real clear view of what it would be like to raise me and what kind of person I was, because they might not have made me, okay? I'm really glad the Lord just concealed the future for them. If you're a Christian, God loves you. That means you're born again according to what Jesus says in John 3. What that means is because of who God is, because of what God wants, and because God is love, God didn't, God didn't and he's never waiting on you to say or do or ask him to choose you, forgive you, redeem you, or give you a new life. 
and he's not waiting on you to make the initiative to sustain that love. He takes the first step. He's the initiator. He's always out in front in this relationship. God makes the first move. That's kind of his thing, you know? And he's always initiating. He's always moving. And he's never waiting on you to be a better, more disciplined person, a holier person, a better Bible reader, a smarter person, a more righteous person, a better spouse, kinder, gentler, more patient. He's not waiting on you to be a better son or daughter so he can love you. That's coming to you because of him. And the, and the level and amount of love he has for you can't even be hindered by you, no matter how bad you are, if, if you've been born again. Nothing will change a person's life, will change your life, like knowing and receiving the love of God. Next point. God's love isn't for good enough people, but for failures and the failing. That's who gets his love. The failures. The failing. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and believe. We have come to know and receive. We have it. The love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in him, who stays in God's love, they abide with God, and God abides with him, in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love. Perfect, ca perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There's only one category of people God has to be able to choose from to give his love. There's only, there's only one pool of candidates. And it's called the human race. And you could label that category any which way you want. But there's only one category, one type of person that God has to choose from. It's sinful knuckleheads, dummies, losers, failures, defiled and dirty, incompetent, cripples physically or emotionally or mentally, the unattractives, the deplorables, the slow to learn, or as I like to call myself the category I was born into, they can't get right. My nickname is just can't get right. Why do you call him can't get right? Well, man, Boston, you just can't get right. That's just, that's me. That's, and I, can't, I, I never feel like I can just like, I just can't get right. And man, this is good news that God's love is for can't get rights. He doesn't, the people who believe they can get right and they don't need God, they don't get, if you don't need God, you don't feel like you need him, then you're not going to get his love. It didn't come to you. But it comes to people like, I, I'm, I can't get right. He goes, oh, I love you. You're the kind of person I came for. Man, this is, this is, this is good news. I don't, I don't just get crushed myself. I, I don't just get crushed by my repeated inability to meet God's expectations. And God's expectations are perfect. You know, who, you know who really does the crushing? It's me. My standards are nowhere near as high as God's, but I treat them like they're better than him. And his love, I, I, sh I, sh 
shove off, I push off. His grace and mercy gets an internal, invisible, unheard, but definitely said, Man, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I know, but look at me. My standard of success and goodness, my standard, over and over again. I'm not talking every now and then throughout a year or two. I'm talking about a regular, common experience in my life. I am a Christian, and I am your pastor. And this is not me being fake, humble, to seem like a good guy. I'm telling you the truth. My standard of success and goodness is what determines how I feel about myself. I'm so often weighed down with shame and guilt. I, I, I am covered constantly. I keep on putting these clothes on, this emotional clothing, in self-loathing. I'm not a big fan of me. And that, that doesn't mean, oh, that, well, that's just humble. No. Humility doesn't mean you hate yourself. I constantly wrestle with self-loathing. And most days, if I'm honest, most days, Satan doesn't have to attack me. Demons don't have to attack me or lie to me or tempt me or anything like that. Most days, if Satan wants to take the day off, all he's got to do is come look at me and see my, my head, my heart, my feelings. All he's got to do, and he's just going to come and sit down, whip out his camping chair, sit down, crack, it open, crack open a deuce-deuce, some malt liquor, and eat some snacks, right? Some gas station potted meat, and enjoy the show. That's all he's got to do. Because I don't really like me. Why should I? Look, look at what I say and how my real everyday life doesn't even match up most of the time. Forgetfulness, distraction, laziness, self-centered, selfishness, broken promises, unmet standards, lack of discipline and self-control. I think I've been saying some really good stuff in the sermon so far. I've only heard like one or two amens. Any of, some of you know me really good. This should get an amen. Yeah, I know you. He's telling, he's telling the truth. Amen. And yet, I need God's love, and he wrote it down, and it's not going away. And in Romans chapter 5, amongst a hundred million other places in the Bible, he says, but God has shown his love for you, Matt, in this, that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And you're still sinning, but you are a son. Why? Christ died for you. His love for me. Boy, I'm in real danger once I start to believe that I'm finally getting it. I'm in real danger of losing God's love, forgetting God's love, taking it for granted once I start believing that I'm finally getting someplace where I don't have to pray so much and depend on God so much. And he, he must be proud of me because I'm not bothering him all the time with prayer or need, right? I'm in a real dangerous spot then. Can I just share this with you? How this, this very week, God encouraged me and showed me his love. This is real. This is from my life this week. Boy, did I need it. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, here's what it says. God says, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. He is faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Boy, that's what a failure like me needs to know. That's what a can't get right like me has. That's the only thing I, that's, what, that's the kind of strong rope that I can cling to. Do you know what I needed to hear from God? 
Philippians 1.6 is in the Bible for people like me who stink at Christianity. Isn't that great? You stink at life. Jesus lives and dies for you. And then you're saved and you stink at the Christianity. You stink at this new life. He, di- he lived and died for you. It hasn't left you. The very love that I needed on the day God saved me is the very same love I needed this week. I need it today. I'm going to need it tomorrow. I need it right this very second. Jesus already knew everything about you before he died for you. He took that into account. Not just all the sins and failures and mess-ups of your life up to the point of salvation or up to now, but he knows about everything that you have no idea you're going to get into. He chose a sinful, wretched, unfaithful loser like me, and in his love, he started something. And what he started, I can be sure he's going to get it done. And he's happy about the work he's doing. He's happy about doing the work. He, he is excited about what he's doing to me and in you. Why? Because he's doing it for me because he loves me. He is pumped. What kind of God is this? He doesn't resent you for being slow. He doesn't resent you for messing up again. He doesn't resent you for your dissatisfied disappointment and your mopey, oh, Eeyore attitude. He doesn't resent you. He's not grumpy. He's not tolerating you until you finally get better. No. He is working in you. He started it, and he's doing it, and he He just can't wait for you to see what he's seeing, what he's bringing about. Same is true for you and anyone who receives the love of this kind of God. Nothing's going to change your life like knowing and receiving the love of this God. Next point, God's love starts with him, and nothing, well, nothing you screw up can make it end. I mean, So we have come to know and to believe, know and believe, we have it, that God has, the love of God that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love, God abides in him and he abides in God. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. And here we go. There is no fear in love. There is therefore now no fear in God's love because Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because fear has to do with punishment. And whoever has fear, it says that whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's saying God's love hasn't been achieved. It hasn't, com- it hasn't been fulfilled. It hasn't been completed in that person's life. Th- this particular point, this, this truth, is how I want to duct tape the previous truth to the next one, okay? So this is kind of a, uh, I'm going to join these two hands together. So I'm going to say the last point real quick, um, that God's love isn't for good enough people. It's for failures and those who are failing. And God's love starts with him and nothing you can screw up can make it end. You can't stop it. God loves sinners and and not even the worst, stupidest, knuckle-headed moron of a 
beloved sinner can shake off his love from them. Jesus says, he goes, I know who my people are. I know who my sheep are. My father puts them in my hand. And because they're in my hand, no one can take them out. Now listen, it's a bit easier for a lot of Christians to think that means Satan can't get me unsaved. Oh, good. But a lot of people will still have this sneaking, worrying suspicion that they themselves could take themselves out of Jesus' hands. That, they, that you could be such a wretch, you could be so slow to learn, you could be so stiff-necked, he could finally cross some line where he's finally like, okay, fine, no, you, no, I've had enough. When Jesus means no one can take you out of his hands, that includes you. That's you. Worry less about Satan. And don't worry about you. Don't be afraid. You don't have to worry. You don't have to have fear. Because perfect love casts out and drives out fear. John says because Jesus has forgiven you your sin, He's washed you clean by his shed blood. He's made you favorable, propitiated, and beloved in the eyes of of his Father. You have no reason to fear God's judgment. You have no reason to fear that he's disappointed in you. So he's scowling at you. He's rolling his eyes. He's holding back and gritting his teeth. There is therefore now no for those who are in Christ. On the day of judgment, and a day is coming, on the day of judgment, when you stand naked and totally revealed before Almighty and Holy God on His throne, if you're a Christian, you stand there as a beloved child of God through Jesus Christ. John says on that day, with that God on that throne, His love brings you You'll be secure. You'll be great. Don't be worried. You won't have, no, have a shred of anxiety. Because the God on the throne, who is the judge, he also happens to be your father. And you're not a stranger. And he's adopted you. So he's never getting rid of you. If God's love can make you safely brave on the day of judgment, by the way, then you, you don't need to have fear of judgment in this world. God doesn't judge you. God doesn't judge you. He loves you. What that means is anyone else can judge you. I can handle that. I can deal with that. I don't like it. It really stinks. It hurts. I'm not cr- I don't, my life doesn't end with that. Someone could reject me. All of us have been rejected in, in various sorts of ways. Some of you have been divorced, broken up with, dumped, turned down. Some of you were rejected or maybe even neglected by those who ought to have had you and kept you. Some of you have been abused and violated by those who were supposed to protect you. Jesus, our Lord, loves you. And you can trust him. And you know what it's like now. If you're a Christian, now you know what it's like to be received and had and kept. No matter what. Romans 8 says in verse 31, what are we going to say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul's asking a rhetorical question, and the answer is not, no one can be against you. The answer is, Satan can be against you, you can be against you, the world can be against you, bad people can be against you. Yeah, 
But he's also going, who could be against you? What he's meaning is, all those, all those people, all those things, they don't really amount to anything. If God is for me, those people and things and their judgment, their condemnation of you, it doesn't, it doesn't count. It doesn't balance in the scales. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he also not give all things graciously to us? He started big with you. This is God's love. He started big. It's not Christmas where some parents will tease you and they start with the stocking and they start with the little, 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 little presents growing all the way to finally, finally we get to the one that I'm waiting for. It's in the big box. No, he goes, Merry Christmas starts with the big box. He gives you his son. Here's how he loves you. I tell you that because you got his son, he's not, he's not interested in ever going stingy with his love for you. Who's going to bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies you. Who's going to, who's going to condemn you? Anyone who would condemn you. Even, even if it's legitimate, even if you really have sinned and messed up. Who's there to condemn you? Who's, he says that Jesus is the one who died. Jesus is the one who's condemned in your place. And more than that, he was raised. And he's at the right hand of his father God, and he's interceding. He's talking to his father, praying for you. He loves you. So Deuteronomy chapter 31. So therefore, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. You go with this people, God's people, into the land that the Lord has sworn to you. It's the Lord who goes before you. And he will be with you. And he will not leave you. He won't forsake you. He won't forget you. Don't be afraid. Don't be, do not fear. Don't be dismayed. Next, next point. God's love can and change God's love can and will change the course of your future forever. So because you can't do anything to end it, his love now changes the course of your future forever. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And that's a forever thing now. It's locked in. Because of that, Jesus, Jesus tells his people in John chapter 14, he says that he's going back to heaven with his father to prepare a place for us, for you. So because of Philippians chapter 1, 6, and because of, and along with every assurance that God's love is faithful and everlasting and secure, God's making a promise. His love is a seal. It's a secure seal promise. The, your dollar bills, some of you are lucky or fortunate by God's grace. He loves you more than me. He, you've got fives and tens, maybe twenties and fifties, right? But these, these dollar bills, they have symbols on them. Those are what the government considers seals, guarantees. This is what's called, a, a, a dollar bill is what's called a promissory note. This is a promise that if you turn this in, it will be received as money. It will be received as value. God's love is its own promise. Not just for this life, but forever. Which means because God abides in you and you in him and you have his spirit, he loves you. We have something called heaven. A now heaven that if any of us were to die in this moment, we would go to. And, and Christ calls it paradise. 
And then there is a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation coming. When he closes and ends the movie of current human history, and now we start that movie, it's a new creation, a new earth, a new heaven. God dwells now with us, we with him, and everything about you and me is going to be redeemed. It's going to be restored, righted, perfected. So, so the aches and pains that you got, people of a certain age where you hurt yourself in your sleep, you, you can't move your leg that way, the way you used to. You can't, you can't lift your arm or elbow much more, and now you're walking around like CP, C3PO, right? Right? Grabbing something off the top shelf, you're just like, mm, please help me, Master Luke, right? You can't see as good no more. You can't hear nothing. You can't remember stuff no more. That's done. This in here, and this in here, and all of this. Perfect, right, the way it's supposed to be. Better than you ever knew it when you were 22. Better. And you're going to be amazing. Anyone who lays eyes on you, it's going to be, you're going to be awe-inspiring. You're going to be jaw-dropping, mouth-gaping, mind-bogglingly attractive and powerful. You will be powerful, healthy, and vibrant. And let me know, this is, big, this is a big deal. In heaven, everyone's going to like you. Here, not everyone thinks you're a sweetie pie. Some people do, thank God. Here, some people, I'm just not their friend. It might not even my, my fault might not be their fault. But in heaven, everyone's going to like you. Everyone's going to like you. God's love, his love that starts with him, listen, I want you to hear, un understand this. His love, which starts with him, his love would be imperfect and ultimately dissatisfying. It would ultimately be a failing love if the end result and the final goal of his love never arrives, which is the redemption of your body and this universe forever. If it doesn't result in that, then Jesus really is just a good idea, and this is a really lame club, and you could have slept in this morning, and you can save all that money you give on tithes, and you can stop sacrificing so much for people. It's not really worth it. It's really not. But it is. Because you abide with God and he in you. And in his love, you'll live with him forever. God is loving you with everything he does. He is loving you toward the new creation. He is loving you toward perfection. He is loving you toward the perfect mind, the perfect heart, the perfect soul, the perfect body, in a perfectly joyful universe to love and be loved with him and all of his children forever. That's what he's doing. That's the only direction he's taking you with everything. And then finally, two points. And these will be, I promise, a bit quicker. God's love has a face. And it's the face of Jesus. The invisible became invisible. The invisible became visible. God's love has a face. Jesus, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, showed up in reality, that God sent his only son, Jesus, into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation to make us favorable and good-looking and approved of and beloved before his father. So here, here's, how, here's what I want to say here. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we learn that God designed and then created humanity. He created us. He created humans to dwell with him. 
His intention, his design, his purpose was so that we would be with him. Adam walked in the garden with God. Eve walked in the garden with God. They knew God, talked to him, heard him. In reality, manifestly. But then from Genesis 3 onward, because of sin, because of sin, because of our fallenness, now we can't see him. We can't dwell with him. can't see his face. And that's what you and I were built for. We were created for, to see his face. The lifeblood of our peace, of our joy, of our happiness, of our completion, of our rightness. We were designed to be with God, to see his face. And now for thousands of years, or depending upon your theology, for millions of years, couldn't see his face. That's what we were designed and created for. No wonder we're a mess. No wonder we're hungry. No wonder we're, and we're confused and in chaos. Because what we need for real life, we, we don't have. We need him. We can't see his face. So in the book of Exodus, this is moment where this guy, Moses, that God has been talking to. Now, Moses hadn't seen his face, right? He talked to him through this bush that was on fire but not being consumed by it, right? He's talking in prayer to God, and God is revealing prophecies to him, right? But there's this moment, finally, where he's out in the desert, on a mountain. All of God's people are out there, and God is talking to him in kind of a hazy, stormy cloud of glory. And God goes, okay, that's the plan. Let's get moving. And Moses goes, um, can I ask one more thing? God goes, yeah, sure, man. Ask Swing, swing away. And Moses goes, could you show me your glory? That's what I want. That's what I was built for. And if I'm going to go do this and obey you, it's going to take a lot. Can you motivate me? Can you, can you give me the oomph that I need to be able to go back down to these stiff-necked people? Because they're all naked and dancing around a big fire and getting drunk, and they got a golden cow they're worshiping instead of you. All right, so look, it's going to take a lot for me to go back down. Can I, still, can I see your glory? And God goes, yeah, sorry, bub, you can't see my face. Moses asked for the glory to be seen. And God goes, you can't see my face. He shows him his goodness. It's really nice of God. But if God shows his face, reveals his face, which is his glory, Moses is still a sinner. And because he loves Moses, he doesn't want to kill him yet. He doesn't want to annihilate him. But then... That's a problem. We need to see him. That's what we're created for. So you know what? The message of the gospel is that the unseeable God, he gives himself a face, the very face that mankind needs to see. And it's this son, Jesus, who is the love of God made manifest in human flesh. And he showed his love, and there's no greater love than this, that one might lay his life down, not simply for a good man or a friend, but also for his enemy. God gives himself a, a face for mankind to see. And then all of a sudden, a troubling voice comes over, crackling on that ham radio kind of thing, like in the 1960s NASA. Uh, Houston, we have a problem. What happens at the end of the Gospels? What happens at the end of Jesus' ministry where he's died and now he's back alive again? What happens about 40, 50 days later? Gone. And he told us, he's go I'm going back to heaven. Okay, that's great. And we have the Holy Spirit living in us as Christians. That's, that's not just good, that's wonderful, that's necessary. But where'd the face go? We need the face. God gave himself a face. And now, like, they got to see him, but we Christians here 2,000 years later, we still need the face. We can't see him. That He's gone invisible again. He's back up there. 
And it's, uh, Jim Caviezel did a great job in The Passion of the Christ, but that's just a movie, and he's just a guy. So then, final point, God, God's love now has millions upon millions of faces. You, children, his church, his beloved. Like you thought one face was great. I mean, it's perfect. But he goes, oh, I'm going away. But once I'm gone, you're going to be into, into more and greater stuff than I've been doing here. I'm assigning it to you. Why? Because I'm going to give you my face. You think one face of Christ is good. I'm sending millions of my children with my DNA, my love, my spirit, my power, and I'm sending them out into the world. And just like me, they're going to sacrifice. And just like me, they're going to tell the truth and they're going to be gentle, and they're going to be kind, but they're going to be brave. And they won't be ashamed. And a lot of them aren't just going to die like every human being dies. A lot of them are going to die like I died. Putting on real-life demonstration the love of God in which an innocent one would die for the sinner to show the love of God. Beloved, let us love one another, verse 7. For love is from God, and whoever loves God, loves, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected. It shows up. It's complete in us. And so if anyone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, who he can see, can't love God who he cannot see. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, that's next week's sermon. Have you noticed with all that talk in John chapter, in 1 John chapter 4, there's a lot of talk about loving one another and loving your brother. And have you noticed now for two weeks? I haven't even touched that commandment to you, to me. You know why? You can't, you can't give what you don't have. And I want us to give. I want us to be in Niagara Falls of God's love. But it's no use urging or cheerleading or trying to inspire or cast a vision for something for us to do. It's not in our hearts to do. And I just don't want to assume because we're in the church, we're in a building like this, that all of us are either have it or are feeling God's love. So I just wanted to take these two weeks just to do everything I can to open up any gate that's got water behind it, turn any valve on from the Bible in your soul and your life, just to go. And my hope and prayer is that you, you feel loved by God. You'd know it. You'd have it the prayer that I have now for the last week or two, and I'm not going to be done praying, and I invited you to start praying with me for the foreseeable future, is that God would do something. He would do something that would make everything better. He would stir up and change something in my heart and in our hearts. Stir up love that comes from God 
it gets back to God, it overflows and it lands on other people. He was. He wasn't wrong. You're in good shape. Especially when you're in the worst shape. You're in good shape. If that's the kind of God you have. That's how he's feeling about you. No cap. No lies. Let me pray for us. We'll continue worshiping. Lord, I don't want to get fancy in this prayer. God, you've loved us. You have. And you've done everything and said everything already that it takes for us to know it. And yet you keep on saying and showing it. And you're not tired of doing it. You're happy to do it. Show us your love. Bring us your love. Let us experience your love. Make the, make the invisible visible. Help us to draw our minds and hearts, our memories, our eyes to see Remember to know what you have done, how you've provided, how you have protected, how you have preserved us, what you give, what you are giving, what you've removed that has relieved us, everything. Lord, help us be grateful. Our gratefulness that comes up from the place that goes, oh, I see how God loves me. He's so good. I want more of that. I'm so hungry to know and have more of his love. I'm going to stick, I'm going to stay, I'm going to stay at my father's house. I'm going to, I'm going to raid the pantry. Everything in the fridge is mine to eat. Fill me up, God. Fill us up, Lord, with your love in a way that transforms us, changes our lives forever. New, unexpected, unbelievable ways. We want this because that's what you want. And you want us to want it. So we pray in your name for these things, trusting you to accomplish everything that it takes. We love you. Amen. I love you.